This evening there will be two readings. The first is taken from Jonah chapter 2, starting from verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Our second reading is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 42. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, how can you who are evil, say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a, few, of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. This is God's word. If we've not met, my name is Matt, Matt Fuller. I'm, uh, uh, I guess, senior pastor here. And we're looking at this very wonderful, mostly, song of uh, Jonah this evening. Uh, The whole narrative, we're in Jonah this month, the whole narrative gets interrupted. Everything slows right down. The story stops and Jonah sings this song. He's about to die. He's rescued. And so he sings. And I just want to remind you how good it is. If you're a Christian, you know this, but we forget quite how wonderful it is to be rescued from eternal death 
If you're not yet a Christian, please really recognize that. Please, for your sake, for God's sake. Look, I just want to show you, before we get going, really, a little three-minute video. Uh, It's to camera a boy called Nathan. He's 16 years old. He died last weekend. And he recorded this for his classmates at school about three months before he died. He just wants to point out or remind us what, what matters. So here's a, a room uh, overwhelmingly full of young people, able people, talented people with their lives ahead of them. And sometimes we can just forget that we will die and only one thing matters on that day, that you've been rescued by Jesus Christ and you could never do that yourself. And while his parents and his grandparents grieve, Nathan is singing. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, as we turn again uh, this evening to your words, words we, uh, for the first time, for the umpteenth time, would you refresh us in the knowledge that we are lost without you. We are destined for hell without the Lord Jesus Christ, but you have saved us in him. You have reached down, as Psalm 40 puts it, into the pit and rescued us. And there, Father, would we respond with joy, with utter dependence and humility before you, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, this part of Jonah, let's be honest, it's a bit bonkers, just to name it out there. I mean, in one sense, of course, it's quite a familiar story in Western culture. Uh, but a big fish swims along and gobbles up a drowning man and sort of transports him along for three days and then deposits him at the destination he was meant to be going to. Obviously. I mean, I had that last year. Haven't you had that happen to you? Fish travel? It is an unlikely story. And that's the point. That's why it's here. It's a ridiculous salvation. Because we're meant to read it and think, what do we learn about salvation in Jesus Christ? Well, that's also, if I could put it in these terms, absurd. That God himself would come down to this earth for a people who have rejected him, some very vocally despised him, most politely, but pushed him out and said, I'll die for you in Jesus Christ. Why would he do that? Why not just screw this world up and start again? It's ridiculous that the one who created all things would come down and suffer at the hands of those he created. It's mad. It's bonkers. Yeah, yeah, just like being swallowed by a fish and then being vomited up on the shore. Ta-da! The, um, it's meant to be, what? This, this isn't normal. Yeah, that's right. The fact that God would save people like you and me, you may take it for granted, particularly if you've been a Christian for years. It's ridiculous that he cares about us. It's absurd that he would go to the lengths that he went to. And so God gives us this absurd story, so we go, huh? Oh. It's not obvious, not natural, that God would do what he did. No, it is not. It's extraordinary that he saves us the way he does in Jesus Christ. It defies logic that God would care for us that much. 
Now, if you're joining us uh, tonight, we started looking at the book of Jonah last week, Jonah chapter 1. The book of Jonah is, in one sense, it's, it, primarily it's a book about God and how merciful he is. But it's told through the perspective of this one man, Jonah, uh, and his story about how he goes through a deeply painful experience that he didn't need to go through. But he goes through the, the, the mill, through the pit, as it were, in order to realize a truth that he knew in his head, but to realize in his, his, in his experience that God is fantastically merciful to undeserving sinners. That's Jonah. Now, last week in chapter 1, he was running away. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh. God said, go up to Nineveh. And Jonah said, and he went down. He went down to Joppa. He went down into a ship. And we left him. He went down to the bottom of the ocean. He was running away from the Lord's command. And yet all the while, we saw last week in chapter 1 that the Lord pursued him with mercy. He would not let this disobedient believer go. And that is of great encouragement to you and to me. If you're here tonight as a Christian and you're conscious that, um, well, you're not really obeying the Lord either in one lifestyle issue, you're, you're drifting away from him, or your whole pattern of life is walking away, going in the opposite direction from him. The encouragement here is, the Lord will not let his people go. He loves you too much to let you go. Oh, and he may push you through pain, through discipline, through hardship, he may take you to the gates of hell. He may take you to within an inch of your life in order to teach you that he loves you and wants you to return to him. That may be true if you're a Christian. It may be true of you here if you're not. Actually, you've never turned to him, but the Lord is pursuing you. He's desperate for you to return to him because he loves you so very, very much. He will not let his people go. And the song of Jonah 2 will tell us that salvation is from the Lord from the beginning to the end. It's his work. He will keep his people. You can trust him to do that. Now look, uh, I want to look at two points really. There's a narrative point and a poetic point, if I can put it in those terms. You, you can see our reading tonight, chapter 1 verse 17 and chapter 2 verse 10. They're the narrative, the main line of the narrative. And I want to make a point from those two verses that the Lord provides salvation. Uh, and then we'll look at the poem where Jonah sings of salvation, the bulk of it, okay? So just two points, easy peasy tonight. We'll be through in half the time, ha ha. Uh, but um, there we go. First then, the Lord provides salvation. Chapter one, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Of course he was. The Lord provided, appointed, you could put it in those terms, a huge fish. That is extraordinary. I am no oceanographer. I don't even think that's really the right word. Marine biologist, I'm neither of those things. Uh, but I'm aware that a lot of this planet is water. And for the moment where Jonah is in the water and sinking down to his death, for a huge fish to come along and say, hmm, human, that's the one I want, uh, that is fairly extraordinary. God had an appointment in his diary for Mr. Fish to meet Mr. Jonah, and he brought them together. 
He'd planned it. He'd appointed it. Now look, brief tangent, what do you make of this? Uh, Every commentary that you can possibly read on Jonah mentions the story of James Bartley. Apparently James Bartley, 1891, was on a whaling expedition, that's what you do in those days for kicks if you're a young man. So he's gone on a whaling expedition, a la Moby Dick, and uh, they come across a whale, and so the main ship launches off the the three little launch boats with their harpoons, probably not that, is it? Probably a bit bigger, but their harpoons for the whaler, uh, for the whale, to get the whale, uh, well, he's thrashing around a little bit, and James Bartley is thrown overboard and falls in the sea and never to be seen again, so they think. Uh, well, they harpoon the whale, harpoon the whale. It's a long old chase for most of the day, but anyway, eventually they get the whale and pull him on board uh, the ship. And uh, everyone's exhausted, so they all go to bed and uh, fall asleep. The next day, they start chopping away at the whale, smelly, smelly, blubber, etc. And uh, eventually they cut enough away, they get through to the belly, and there's James Bartley, still alive. He's been there for over a day in the stomach of a whale. Apparently, his skin was bleached from the the acids. Uh, He was blind and never able to see again. But there was a man who lived in the belly of a whale for one day. Is that true? I have no idea. I have no idea. But all the commentaries say, whoa, it can happen because it happened to James Bartley. Well, I wasn't there. No, one, I mean, in one sense, what does it matter? Uh, the other one I quite liked, he was one commentator that couldn't, couldn't believe that Jonah was in a whale for three days, not a whale, sorry, excuse me, a uh, big fish, never, never says a whale, uh, wasn't in a, in a big fish. He said, so well, probably what happened was um, Jonah fell in the sea, was deeply traumatized and exhausted, uh, but eventually someone rescued him and they took him to shore. But in order to get over this you know, exposure in the ocean, uh, he had to spend three days in the local pub, which was known as the Great Fish. And so the story got around that <laughs> maybe, I guess, if you want... Because the only issue is, as we have read, in Matthew 12, Jesus said, well, that happened. Jesus has no problem with this story. He thought it was true. Now, again, what's the point of it? It is so unlikely. If you decided one day, look, I'm Jonah, and I'm going to write a story about me and going to the Ninevites, why would you put it this way? If you were making it up, there are all sorts of things you could say. Uh, I fell into the sea, and uh, a big ship came by, and I waved, and and, uh, they saw me, and I got rescued. And I said, praise the Lord, for he rescued me after two days at ocean when I thought I was going to die. You could do that, and people would believe you. Um, or uh, I was Jonah, and I, uh, all, the, uh, all the cargo in chapter one is thrown over sea, so I managed to grab hold of a barrel. Uh, I thought I was going to die, but I grabbed hold of a barrel and strapped a couple of barrels together, and I floated for three days on a raft and praised the Lord. He saved me. You could do that. You could make that up. That would work. A bit more believable. But it's recorded, and presumably this is what took place again, because... It shows how utterly miraculous salvation is. Salvation is of the Lord. Or to put it in another terms, what did Jonah contribute to his salvation? Nothing. I guess if he'd waved at a ship, he could have said, well, I spotted a ship and, you know, uh, I'm pretty good at waving. That's my thing. Um... If he'd held on to a barrel, well, there's some credit to him for doing that. If you're about to die in, in the ocean and a fish swallows you and you survive, not a lot of credit you can take for that. He's not Bear grills. yeah, I got into the whale, and the great fish and my survival skills kept me going. It doesn't work like that. He contributes nothing. Salvation's of the Lord. The Lord provides 
salvation. The Lord provides an implausible saviour. Yeah, that's the point. For the Christian, what do Christians contribute to their salvation? Nothing. Jesus is our saviour. And in a sense, just as a fish surrounded Jonah and Jonah was saved in the fish by being taken to the shore. So the truth of every Christian is they're saved in Christ from beginning to the end of their Christian life. It's him. It's his work. It's not you and it's not me. If you wanted to get technical about it, uh, and I know we've got that one. Um, I don't know if you can see that from where you're sat. It probably depends where you sat. Uh, the point of it being, every part of salvation comes of being in Christ, according to the New Testament. The fact that we're called, we think to ourselves, I want to become a Christian, is in Christ. The fact that we're born again comes from being in Christ. The fact that we're converted, have faith and repentance, is because we're in Christ. Justification comes from being in Christ. Adoption as a child of God is being in Christ. Sanctification, growing to become more like Jesus, is because we're in Christ. Our perseverance, keeping going until the day we die, is because we're in Christ. The fact that we're glorified and taken to be with Jesus in glory is because we're in Christ. It's him. From beginning to end, salvation's of the Lord. It's his work. And the individual believer can say, I contributed nothing that's why we get this preposterous story because it's truly what happened to make us realize we owe everything to the Lord the Lord provides salvation that's the narrative let's look at the poem the song of uh, chapter 2 verses uh, 1 to 9 so second thing here Jonah sings of salvation Jonah sings of salvation. Uh, now, of course, chapter 1, verse 17, you could go straight to chapter 2, verse 10, you'd miss nothing. Uh, now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. That works. That works as a narrative, and the, whole, the rest of the book hangs together. You don't need this song, but the point is it's, the whole story stops. Let's just think about what God has done, his work. Nothing in the rest of the narrative prepares us for this. Jonah's been a bit of a wally up until this point. That's a pathetic term. He's been a sinful rebel up until this point. And all of a sudden, outbursts this song, which, if you study it carefully enough, pretty much every line of it comes from one of the Psalms in the Old Testament. He clearly knew his Bible really well, Jonah. Most of it. But we pause to allow Jonah to extol the wonders of divine grace. He's not even safe at this point. He's singing from inside the belly of a fish. He's not on dry land. So it's probably the most curious place the song has ever been sung to the Lord. But he wants to sing. Now, I think the structure of the poetry suggests there's two halves to it, verses 2 to 6 and then verses 6 to 9. So let me break it in those two. I think the summary then of verses 2 to 6 is that he called in distress. I think that's how it works. So chapter 2, verse 1, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Verse 2 is a summary. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. 
So the distress was when he was sinking in the waves. Now he's in the fish and recalling what happened. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. Chapter one, he thought, I'd rather die than take the message of mercy to Nineveh. When he's facing death, he thinks, well, I'm not so sure about that. Actually, death isn't so good. Uh, And he cries out uh, for mercy. He was deep in the realm of the dead. He was at the threshold of hell, and then he cries out. And then I think you get a little sort of sandwich structure uh, to this half of the poem. So verses verse three and verses five and six, they're very similar. They sort of stack up the metaphors for danger. And in the center of them, you get verse four, which is actually his cry. I think that's how it works. So the emphasis comes on verse four. So let's look look through it. Verse three, you hurled me into the depths. That's interesting, because actually the sailors hurled Jonah into the sea. But he is now recognizing the Lord's control, sovereignty over his life. That's good. You hurled me into the depths. And you see there's a sort of descent here into the heart of the seas. The current swirled about me, and then it gets even worse. All your waves and breakers sweep over me. So he's going down, down, down. Verses 5 and 6 are much the same. There's a sort of descent or, 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 or into sort of seriousness. So verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me. And then the deep surrounded me. And then the seaweed was wrapped around my head. It's as if, culturally, if you're a Jew, you die, you get buried in a shroud. You get a burial clothes wrapped all around you, a bit like a mummy. And he's saying it's like the seaweed was a funeral shroud around me. I'm about to die. And so verse 6, to the roots of the mountains, the bottom of the ocean, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. It's like I was in jail. Everything was lost. But at the center of these verses, you get verse 4. As I'm about to die, as I was about to go, Jonah said, I said to you, I've been banished from your sight. Hold on a minute. The issue here is not primarily I'm going to die. The issue is not the, primarily the water. The issue primarily is with you. Hmm. So I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. That is our prey. In Old Testament language, uh, 1 Kings 8, Daniel 6, whenever you're in trouble, you turn to the temple and pray. So he says, I, I realized actually the issue is not the water. My issue is between me and you. And so I thought, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray again. To God's holy temple. So Jonah calls out from his distress. Very good. So, so then, for you and for me. Now, let me not be um, simplistic about it. There are lots of different reasons why people become Christians. Loads of different reasons. And it would be utterly patronizing to say that everyone upon their deathbeds thinks, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, is there an afterlife? I don't think everyone does. And yet sometimes it is for many people, it is when we have our comfort, our self-reliance, our health stripped away and we're faced with nothing. At that moment we think, Help? Is this it now? I wouldn't suggest that's true for everyone, but for many. 
as many would know, my father died in the autumn. For 80 years, he was very hostile to the gospel. Whenever I tried to speak to him, he would physically get up from the dinner table and walk away. I said, Dad, can we talk about Jesus? He said, you mentioned him one more time. I'm leaving the dinner table. Come on, Dad. And he would just walk. Slightly stubborn man. Fortunately, that didn't pass on to me. <laughs> it's all right, my wife's not here tonight. You know, I'd say to him, Dad, we need to talk about what happens when you die. No, we don't. You and I never have that conversation for 80 years. Just after his 80th birthday, he came down with cancer and uh, had about 18 or so months left to live. And then he was willing. And so for the last year of his life, he'd let me read the Bible to him, pray with him. In all honesty, I don't know if he was converted before he died. That's a tough thing to say. But I have lots of reasons for hope. We had lots of positive conversations. And certainly a man who's content all his life. In the last year or so, thought, go on then, tell me a bit more. I just wonder. I just wonder. Look, most here are young. Not all have seen uh, someone they love die. But I've got to tell you, dying is hard, I observe. Physically, it's painful. It hurts a lot emotionally having your competencies stripped away, being unable to control your basic bodily functions when you've been a highly competent person for decades. It's degrading. It's hard dying. And then you might think to yourself, and what happens when I die? Is there a God? Do I face him? Do I give an account to him for my life? So for some, it's in distress. It doesn't have to be. Many other reasons people become Christians. But sometimes we just need to recognize in this life there's a sense in which all of us, you and me, we're just about treading water. Or we may feel invincible. But we're just keeping our heads above water. And you can be 16 years old and be gone. Jonah called out in his distress. He recognized that there was a deep need. I need you, Lord. I got nothing. I got nothing to cling to. There is no flotsam, no jetsam, no, no, I got nothing. I cling to you. And actually at some point, the person who becomes a Christian says, Lord, if I'm gonna be with you forever in glory, if I'm gonna go to heaven and not hell, I got nothing. I just cling to you. So Jonah sings of salvation. He called out in his distress. He recognized his deep need. But in the second half of the song, I, I'd probably want to suggest to you in verses six to nine, his response is a little bit mixed. It's a bit more mixed. So verses six to nine. Now, the end of verse six and the end of verse nine, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So uh, top of page 929. Here's a great statement. But you, O Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Brilliant. End of verse 9. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Brilliant. Those are two fantastic statements. But the rest I don't know so much. Verse 7 is probably neutral. Uh, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Well, that's probably okay. I, I think there's only one other place in the Old Testament where an individual remembers the Lord, as opposed to dozens of times where the Lord remembers his people. So it may be sort of slightly self-centered, don't know about that. But verse 8 is the one that uh, uh, I think is a little bit odd. 
True theology, but a little bit odd. So Jonah says, verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good, I will say. Salvation comes from the Lord. Now verse 8, that's true theology. If you cling to worthless idols, you are lost. At the point at which you're about to die, if you've pursued money all your life, money will not save you. Your career will not save you. Your family cannot save you at the point of death. So everything you may cling to is useless. True theology. Only the Jesus Christ can save you. That's correct. But there's a couple of reasons. Let me suggest them to you. I think he's, he's a bit mixed here. Uh, the first is this. There is no confession from Jonah. He says, I'm in trouble and I need you to rescue me. But he never says, I was wrong. I am sorry. I repent of running away from you. There's no, no confession at all in this, which is odd, I'd say. We will always have a prayer of confession at every meeting in this church to say we have done wrong. That's why we need the Lord to save us. I am a sinner. And even this week, I have sinned against the Lord. I confess it. I want to repent of it. I want to change of it. There's none of that quiet in Jonah. It's a bit odd. The second thing, I think verses 8 and 9 are are somewhat self-righteous from Jonah. Verse 8, true theology, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But who's Jonah having a go at here? Because so far in the narrative, the only people who've done anything like that are the sailors. The sailors in chapter 1, verse 5. All the sailors were afraid and they cried out to his, each cried out to his own God. And so Jonah says, but I won't do that. So it's a slightly odd at that point. Jonah is saying, Lord, thank you for saving me. Uh, People like the sailors who cling to idols, they won't be saved. But I haven't done that. I cling to you. Well, it seems a slightly odd thing to pray in a prayer of thanksgiving. Particularly as, look, Jonah says, uh, uh, verse 9, I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. I will make good my vows. Well, Jonah, you're a bit late because in chapter 1, verse 16, the sailors have already done that. The people you're knocking, criticizing. Because in chapter 1, verse 16, the sailors feared the Lord. They've already offered sacrifices. They've already made their vows. Everything Jonah says he will do, the sailors who he's criticizing have already done. So it seems like there's a slightly unpleasant taste hint of self-righteousness. Jonah sounds quite a lot here, like the Pharisee of Luke 18. Remember that story Jesus observes? Two men go to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisee, you know, impressive man in society, tax collector not. And the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I've got. Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I've got you and I'm not like them. And Jonah says pretty much the same. Lord, I thank you for saving me, and I'm not like those silly people over there. So it's a little bit mixed at this point. Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving, I'd suggest. He's saved but self-righteous. Now, what do you and I take away from that? Well, if we're Christians, I guess there's a little warning for you and for me. 
not to be like Jonah. Not to stand here this evening and say, Lord, thank you for saving me. And I'm glad I'm not like them. And if you here as a Christian ever find yourself really thinking that, Lord, I'm really grateful that morally I'm not like them. I'm grateful that I'm not like the people in my office who seem to just live for their careers and live for their work and live for the money and live for the drink and live for the sex. I'm grateful that I'm not like them. Be careful about that. There's certain pride, I'd suggest, in that. Jonah's a bit mixed. But then most Christians are a little bit like Jonah, a bit mixed in our responses. Lord, I thank you for praising me. But question, when you thank the Lord for, pray, for saving you, is there repentance? And I needed it because of I've done this and this and this. I confess the sins I've done. Is there confession along with your thanksgiving? If not, I'm not so sure that's healthy. And alongside your thanksgiving, do you ever think, I'm grateful I'm not like them? You see, Jonah has right doctrine in many ways. So he can pray, salvation comes from the Lord, and yet he also prays, I remembered the Lord, I sing to the Lord, I make sacrifices to the Lord, unlike them. So he's confession doctrinally, and yet the attitude of his heart, there is a mismatch here. Uh, and the result of that, the, the ugliness of that, comes out very strongly when we get to chapter 4. So he's a little bit mixed. So all of us need to remember, particularly I guess if we're Christians, salvation is God's work, not mine. He is wonderful, I am not. He opened my eyes to see how great he is. I didn't discover it for myself. Salvation is from the Lord. Two implications, then we're done. Uh, the first is this. How does Jesus take this in Matthew 12? Well, here's the first little implication. Jesus would say, trust the sign. The sign of Jonah, which I think is resurrection. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is confronted by hostile religious leaders and they say, teacher, we, we want to see another sign from you. You've done some signs. We want to see another sign. Go on, another miracle. Uh, he says, you wicked, adulterous generation, no more. The only sign you'll get now is the sign of Jonah. So Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Teacher, give us another sign. Go on, you've done a few miracles. There's only one more sign for you, my resurrection. That's it. And so I think the application for you and me is trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're meant to read Jonah and think, wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah, so is Jesus Christ, God himself in the man Jesus Christ, dying for your sins, being raised again to eternal life. Trust in that. And can I just ask, have you done that? I'm sure a majority here have. But if you've never cried out, God, I think you're there. And I do see that I need you to save me. I will never get to heaven. Actually, if I'm judged on my own performance, I go to hell. But I see that Jesus died for me, rose again, 
and I trust in him. Have you done that for yourself? That's the way you get to sing in heaven forever, along with Nathan, even when you die. Have you done that? Please trust in the sign. And then secondly, for for all of us, for Christians as well, as non-Christians here, be humbled. Jonah sings rightly, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, if you understand that, you cannot be proud. You cannot be impressed with yourself. There is nothing you've contributed. So that statement, salvation comes from the Lord, is the most noble part of the whole song in one sense. If you're a Christian, you owe everything to the Lord. Everything. Everything. There is no glory for you and me in being saved. We take no credit. At the end of this little encounter, Jonah is brought onto dry land and vomited out. I like to think there's one or two Ninevites there in front of him. And, uh, you know, if you're vomited out of a big fish that you've been in for three days, I take it, you stink. You smell. You don't arrive and go, yeah, here I am. Uh, Ta-da! You stink. There is nothing impressive about you. It is utterly degrading to... I mean, who wants to arrive? Do you want to come here this evening? How did you get here this evening? Well, I came and arrived in a pile of vomit. Lovely. Lovely. No one wants to do that. There's nothing impressive about Jonah. If anyone saw him arrive, he can't afterwards say, yeah, I, I am fish rider. Um, I conquer fish. And, you know, that, you can't do that. If you're a Christian, you can take no pride in being in your own achievements. Proud Christian is an oxymoron. It's like trying to put two magnets together. You get them quite close and they sort of always veer away from one another. You can't be a proud Christian who says, look at me. You can't do it. It's a complete nonsense. And yet, Jonah kind of did it in his song. And so even though it's nonsense, that temptation does lurk within you and me. But Christian and joyful humility, they're meant to come together. I owe everything to the Lord. Now that is humbling. But at the same time, it does bring an enormous sense of relief as well. Because if salvation is from the Lord from beginning to end, and you're a Christian, he will keep you. He will keep you. Oh, you might try and walk away. You might try and run away like Jonah did. And it was pretty miserable, the whole experience of running away. But the Lord kept him. And he'll do the same for you. That's the joy. That's the encouragement. That salvation doesn't rest in my hands. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Trust him. Give thanks to him. Be humble before him. You owe him everything. And there'll come a point for each and every person in this room where nothing matters but that you know that salvation from the Lord. So why don't we sing of it now? It's truly wonderful. Let's pray together.
Our Father, our great need, whether we're a Christian or not, is to recognize that we are lost without you, but you wonderfully provide salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, I'm sure there's some here this evening who have never accepted that, never clung, never shouted out, I need you, I trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, And Father, for those here tonight, please, would you be persuading them that that is what they need to do? Father, for those of us who are Christians, we need to remember we're lost. We may be content. We may be so familiar with our salvation in Jesus Christ, we take it for granted. Would we recognize our desperate need? We were on our way to hell until you lifted us from that pit. You pulled us away from that prison from certain eternity away from you in Jesus Christ. And therefore, would we sing? Would we rejoice with Jonah? Or would we do so without any sense of, look what I've done, look what I've remembered, look what I've achieved, look what I've discovered, look what I've realized. But the cry, Jesus does it all. I owe everything to him. Salvation comes from the Lord. Would that be our cry of joyful humility, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.